We're back in the Luke series. We had a, a month away from our, our multi-year series, slowly going through the gospel according to Luke, and we're back. We just finished Jonah, uh, and so we're going to pick up where we left off. I think Ben was the last one preaching in Luke, uh, and so we're, we're right where we left off. Just to remind you of what the gospel according to Luke is, it is a early first century uh, account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke is the writer of this gospel account, the good news about Jesus. And in chapter one, he describes um, this account as just one of many ancient narratives of the things that have occurred uh, among us, things that have been accomplished by Jesus uh, in the presence of many, many witnesses. Um, Luke says that, that he followed all the things about Jesus very closely for some time past, and now he's undertaken in this writing to uh, make a compilation, to, to provide an orderly account so that his readers, very specific purpose to this, may have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught, so that they may have hope in the news about Jesus that they've heard from other sources. And that's our hope for this series, for us as well, uh, that we may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught that by looking at Jesus Christ closely, we may have hope in him. Emily. Luke 2, verse 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, "'Son, why have you treated us so?' Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for your word, uh, that this trustworthy account of the life and ministry of Jesus has been been passed down to us through thousands of years, uh, that we uh, hold in our hands a trustworthy and true account of all that Jesus came to say and to do for us and for our salvation. May this word bring us hope. Would we have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught? Would you build our faith? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever met someone, uh, whether they have a really quirky character or they're just, you know, particularly interesting people, and you ask the question, I wonder what you were like when you were a child. Yeah, there's just something about them that you can't exactly figure out. They're interesting, a little bit strange. They're very different from you. And so you start to ponder, you start to create a mental image of what two-year-old them was like, five-year-old them, 12-year-old them was like. Reading the Gospels really ought to have a little bit of an effect like that on us, provoke the question, I wonder what Jesus was like when he was just a little guy. 
Um, the expression that we find in Luke 2, the boy Jesus, it's really you know, the only time that we get a glimpse into what Jesus Christ was like when he was young. Because really, as you read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're not given a lot of details about what Jesus was like at this age. Uh, Mark and John's Gospel, they just land us right into the heart of Jesus' ministry. Uh, when, he, when he's an adult man, when he's beginning his public ministry in Galilee and in Jerusalem, Matthew's Gospel uh, spends a little bit of time in his early infancy, setting that up, and then immediately we're right into his, his adult life. And it's only in Luke's gospel, it's only here that we get just the tiniest window into the boy Jesus. Just 11 verses. It just gives us this narrow slice into his adolescence. And this, this short account, it really ought to satisfy us of our speculative guesswork of what Jesus was like as a boy. One of the early church father noted, because much of Jesus's childhood isn't revealed, therefore, it must not be needed. Like if God wanted us to know more about what Jesus was like as a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old, it would have been revealed. But instead, God in his wisdom, through the writer Luke, tells us that there's just one really simple thing that we ought to know about Jesus as a boy. Jesus has always been busy with his heavenly father's work. From the time he was an infant, when he was a young boy, and as he, as he aged, Jesus has always been busy with his heavenly father's work. There was never a time when Jesus was off, you know, goofing off, doing his own thing, getting into trouble. There wasn't a time where he was acting improperly or immature or doing something sinful. Jesus always, his entire life, was all about his father's business. Again, from his birth to his final breath and ongoing into eternity, Jesus has been busy, not with his own work, but with his father's work. Um, this is our outline for today, if you're into outlines. Uh, what is the Father's work? What was it that Jesus was busying himself with? And then second, why Jesus' work is our hope. So the first part, what is the Father's work that Jesus is busy with? Let's just look through the text first, just kind of orient ourselves to where we are. The setting of this is the ancient city of Jerusalem. And Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, um, they're, they're very devout people. And so they've taken this long journey from Nazareth, Nazareth in the north of Israel down south into Jerusalem uh, for the annual feast of Passover. And the boy Jesus, we see in verse 42, if you see it there, he's 12 years old. In that culture, the age 12 was kind of significant. It was on the cusp of adulthood. When you turn 13, you were treated kind of religiously and socially like an adult. So at this point, we're still being introduced to Jesus, the kid, the, the young man, the, the boy, really. Um, in verse 43, we see that once the feast is done, Jesus' family, along with trusted relatives and acquaintances and maybe neighbors from Nazareth, they, they left Jerusalem and they traveled back up north to go to Nazareth. But look at verse 43. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents did not know it. Verse 44 finds an entire day has passed before his parents uh, realize that, that, uh, that Jesus wasn't with them. Now, before you start judging <laughs> Mary and Joseph, this is probably like a fairly large crowd that they're with. Um, at this point, we don't know how many more siblings Jesus had. So, you know, they've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, but either way, this is, this is the parents' worst nightmare. They're a day's journey outside of this city, and they've left their 12-year-old behind. 
And so it takes an entire day for them just to travel back to Jerusalem. And in verse 45, if you look, they begin their search, seeking the boy in the hustle and bustle of this great and ancient city, uh, crowded with action because it's, you know, this big national holiday. Two days have elapsed. A 12-year-old alone in the city, where should they look for him? Now, depending on, on what you were like as a child, you can imagine the first place that your parents might have looked for you. The first place for me, my parents would have went to the hospital. Michael has climbed on something. He has tried to reach for something he really shouldn't have, and he has broken both arms or both legs or something like that. That's where he probably is. If he's not at the hospital, then he is at the cop shop. He, you know, maybe he's in prison because he figured, I have to join a street gang. I have to resort to a life of crime. My parents have abandoned me, so I have to steal my food. I'm just, I'm just, this is my life now. This is who I am. Maybe for you, your parents would have made different stops, but for whatever reason, the temple wasn't the first place that Mary and Joseph thought. Because if you look at verse 46, they're into their third day of searching. They've been in Jerusalem for a whole day looking, and they haven't found Jesus yet. And, and, and this is where um, Mary and Joseph are perhaps at fault, or where they, where they have forgotten something significant about who Jesus is. Because they think that Jesus is like other little boys, that he'll be doing what other little boys would be doing in a city like that. Instead, they find Jesus has been busy with his heavenly father's work. In verse 46, they finally found, find Jesus, the full three days after they, they, they left him behind, and he is in the temple. And it says he's sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The old King James translation says, Jesus was sitting in the midst of the doctors. Now, this is just to give you the sense that, that he's sitting among the top-notch scholars of his day, the, the top of the top. These aren't local parish priests. Uh, these are the elite academics in Jerusalem. Um, some of you know I'm taking a couple courses, chipping away at, at a Master of Theology and reading this text. I was just struck that like no, no professor has ever said to me... Uh, <laughs> That, that, that shows incredible insight and understanding. No one has ever been amazed at my understanding and answers. If anything, you know, during our classes, they're like, are you sure you read the material? Like, are, you, are you sure you know what's going on here? Uh, but here is the boy Jesus, 12 years old, not a man yet. He's still a boy, not even at the age that he was expected to take his faith too seriously. He's just a child at this point. And he's, he's sitting amidst the, the scholars, the doctors of theology, and he's amazing them. He's hanging with them. He's asking, I don't know if you've ever been asked a really good question that's penetrating, that maybe exposes some, some gaps in your own knowledge, something that stimulates you to, to new fields of inquiry that weren't previously open until you heard that really good question. All of these, you know, really rugged intellectuals, they're amazed at this boy. And in verse 48, you see that Jesus' parents, they're also astonished too, um, but very clearly they're ticked as well, right? Verse 48, his parents see Jesus, they're astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And, and really what's happening here, I think, is that Mary is basically telling Jesus that he has violated the fifth commandment of the 10 commandments, that he hasn't properly honored his mother and his father. I think a lot of people are probably sympathetic to Mary and Joseph at this point. <laughs> why didn't Jesus just say something? Like, why didn't he tell them, okay, I'm going to stay here at the temple? 
Didn't say anything. And then Jesus says this. He asks this question. This is really key to the entire section here. Verse 49, you can look at it. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, this question that Jesus asks, these pair of questions, particularly the second one, is notoriously difficult to translate. In the Greek, there's actually no word uh, house that's there because Jesus is expressing, in the Greek anyways, an idiom, just an expression. Entois tu patros mu. An idiom is a collection of words that don't really seem to fit together, but in the given language, it has an established meaning. So if I were to say to you, it's raining cats and dogs, you and I would have an understanding of exactly what that meant, though those words don't exactly fit. If we were to try to translate that literally into a language that didn't share that idiom, it wouldn't be a good translation. We'd need to figure out a different way to say it. Um, And so in different translations, of Luke, different English translations, you'll find the interpreters trying to express this idiom in different ways. Uh, Why were you looking for me? Some translations say, uh, did you not know I'd be in the things of my father? Or did you not know I would be busying myself with my father's work? Or the old King James translation says it well, I must be about my father's business. And all of them carry the same idea that the boy Jesus is already into the same stuff that his heavenly father is into. And really for the rest of his life, at all times, Jesus will be busy with his father's work, like father, like son. And to Mary and Joseph, Jesus implies, you guys ought to have known this. Uh, You shouldn't be surprised that I'm here. Why were you looking for me? is a great question to ask. Though only a boy of 12, Mary and Joseph ought to have known that this was the son of the Most High God. Um, Mary and Joseph really should have known that Jesus would have been all about his father's business. And this begs the question, and and at last we're getting to the very first point of the outline. It's not a good sermon if you know (laughs) the first point of the outline is coming here, but what is the father's work? That's the question. What is the father's work? And this is the answer. Whatever advances his father's purposes and kingdom, that's, that's, that's the work that Jesus is busy with. Whatever will advance the purposes and kingdom of his father. And here, throughout this passage, we see at least three ways that Jesus is advancing the purposes and the kingdom of his father. There, there are probably more, but there's three in particular that I want us to look at this afternoon. Um, Jesus is busy with the father's work in worship, in obedience, and in truth-telling. Those are the three main realms of work that we see Jesus operating in. Worship, obedience, and truth-telling. So first, Jesus is busy with the Father's work in his worship. And the boy Jesus was given to a devout family, Mary and Joseph, uh, at least once a year. They made this incredibly long pilgrimage from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. Um, they probably worshiped weekly at the local synagogue there in Nazareth, but this is one of these national holidays, one of several that the Jewish people were commanded. Wherever you are in the land, you need to travel to Jerusalem uh, for this feast. Um, This commitment to worship that we see in Mary and Joseph, um, that we see Jesus here participating with, this is one of the means that God uses to advance his kingdom in the world through the worship of his people. Um, The feast of Passover is this celebration of the Father's work of redemption, for the particular people, for the people of Israel. And God would gather his people together in the holy city of Jerusalem, and they would remember and they would celebrate what God had done for them through this Passover meal. 
And they would, they would sacrifice this, this pure and spotless lamb. Uh, they, they would eat of it together. And they would remember how long ago God had rescued all of them from certain death uh, in the land of Egypt. And that he had done so through the blood of a lamb. Like the Feast of Passover, weekly worship, what we do here on Sundays, it also celebrates the Father's work of redemption for us. Uh, God's people gather around the Lord's table, where together we remember, where we celebrate when Christ, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, was sacrificed for us and for our sin. Jesus is the, you could say, the true and greater Passover Lamb. He is who the Passover Lamb so long ago pointed to and anticipated. And this regular act of worship, by being faithful to it, it advances God's kingdom. It shapes us into the kind of people that God has made us to be, people who, who love him and are committed to him and are so thankful for everything that he's done for us. It provides an ongoing public testimony to whatever society we find ourselves in uh, that God is for us, that he is with us, that he rescues us, and that this offer of redemption is available to anyone who would come to him, anyone who would receive it. It's for them. And, and I hope you take worship seriously. What we do here uh, somberly and, and seriously, um, I know it's not always easy to make it. I know, I know it's difficult. Um, we're not told, again, how many siblings that Jesus had at this point. The Gospels make it clear that Mary and Joseph had more kids after Jesus was born. And every year, uh, they, they, and, you know, not only when they were going to the local synagogue, but every year they had to make this 100-kilometer journey to Jerusalem to worship. Um, you know, it was likely all by foot. But they did so in obedient worship to God. Uh, this, this church is, is just over one kilometer from where our house is. And, and I'll tell you, it's not always easy to make it here on a Sunday. <laughs> like for a one kilometer journey, we have a surprising amount of food that we need to pack, like provisions for our journey. We're not sure if, we'll, if all of us will make it or not. Inevitably, somebody has to use the bathroom once everybody's boots are on, all right? And, and most of us have busy, hectic lives, right? Um, and there is work to be done. There are other things in our lives that have to happen. The summer is, you know, I think there's snow coming, but, you know, it's calling to us already at this point. You know, like, it's warming up. We're looking forward to the cottage. Um, but the public worship of God is part of the work that we're called to do to advance God's purposes and kingdom in Halifax. And this is what the boy Jesus we see from a very young age is all about. He's so about it that it ought not to be a question. Uh, this is what I'm here to do. Uh, there was never not a time where Jesus was, wasn't busy with his father's work. So that's the first thing. Jesus is busy with his father's work in worship, remembering and celebrating God's redemption. Second, Jesus is busy with the father's work in his obedience. Uh, Jesus is staying in Jerusalem. Uh, his staying in Jerusalem is an act of obedience to his father. This is exactly where his father wanted him at this time. Jesus never did anything unless his father told him to. Now, th this creates a bit of a conflict, right? Because we wonder, does this mean that Jesus was like generally disobedient to Mary and Joseph? Like, you know, like they were co constantly butting heads. It's not the case, of course, right? You look at verse 51. Uh, Jesus went down with them back to Nazareth and he was submissive to them, which is just a remarkable and humble thing to see, right? Jesus utterly kept the fifth commandment to honor his mother and father. Though, though this is the, the point of this text, of course, though he was greater than them, though he was the son of God, um, he submitted to them as their son. The greater became subject to the lesser. And if Jesus um, was so obedient and submissive, we ask, um, why didn't that submission extend to him 
telling his parents where he would be or going with them um, to Nazareth when they left Jerusalem for the first time. And this is what we see in this passage and we see in, in other passages in the scripture is that Jesus doesn't dishonor his parents by obeying his heavenly father first. Uh, he just orders uh, his honor rightly. Does that make sense? Um, it is not an act of disobedience that Jesus stayed in Jerusalem without his parents. Rather, what Jesus is doing and what he calls all of us to do is just to order our honor in the right way. Um, John Calvin, notes, the duty which Jesus owes to God, his father, ought to be immeasurably preferred to all human duties. Hence, he continues, hence, we may infer the general doctrine that whatever we owe to men must yield to God, that God's authority over us may remain untouched. Thus, we ought to obey kings and parents and masters, but only in subjection to God. Uh, there's an intentional play on words that's happening in this passage. Um, Mary implies that Jesus has treated her and his father, meaning Joseph, poorly. But Jesus' response is that he must be in his father's work, meaning God the Father. Um, again, Jesus is somebody who lived a life of, of full obedience. He, he, he obeyed all rightful authorities over him. But at the same time, all of his obediences were in subjection to God. God's claims over him held precedence. They were always superior to every other claim on him. And this kind of obedience, it also advances the kingdom of God. Uh, many times the apostles, uh, they were commanded by their rightful authorities, by kings and by religious leaders to stop preaching about Jesus. Uh, it was disturbing the peace. It was causing a ruckus. There were riots wherever they went. And the apostles, with all due respect to their authorities, their God-given authorities, they continued preaching Jesus. And they would say things like, we must obey God rather than man. Now, these weren't people who were flagrantly disobedient to whoever, whoever they wanted, uh, but rather their obedience was rightly ordered. And because of this obedience, what we see in the book of Acts, thousands and thousands of people coming to know Christ, um, the church just exploding with growth. And this is the question for us, is what obediences are you being called to today? Where do the commands of political leaders, of, of bosses, of coworkers, uh, even of your own parents, where do they, where do they, con, uh, where do they come in conflict with God's commands? Again, properly ordered obedience is not always easy. It may displease those who you want to please. Uh, it, it may uh, lead to further conflict or threats or suffering even. But obeying God in the way in which uh, God's kingdom is, is uh, advanced, where his purposes are advanced, is what we see in the life of Jesus. Though he was submitted to his earthly mother and father, though he honored kings and governors and religious leaders, he ordered his honor rightly. He worked the work of obedience. So first, Jesus is busy with the Father's work in worship, in obedience, and finally, Jesus is busy with the Father's work in truth-telling, in truth-telling. Uh, telling the truth about God, we see in this passage where Jesus is, is um, giving perhaps positive instruction or at least questions which are sharpening, which are challenging the, the temple scholars. Um, also, the, the winsome and gentle rebuke that he gives to his mother, uh, Mary, the, the question, which has a bit of an edge to it. Uh, these, uh, these efforts at truth-telling also advance the kingdom of God. 
Jesus' future public ministry, as we know, will largely consist of teaching and preaching, communicating with words uh, God's truth and promises to his people. Uh, This is one of the chief ways that God's purposes are advanced in our world, simply telling the truth about God to people. Now, telling the truth, telling it with boldness, with courage, whether as a rebuke or, or, or challenging authorities, uh, it's really fallen on, on hard times recently. I think just the, the good acknowledgement that people have different backgrounds, they have different perspectives, uh, different points of view, it has made us more and more leery of saying, this is, this is true. Um, we would rather say something like, this is my truth, or this is my perspective of the truth, or this is what I believe to be true. But we see none of this in Jesus. Um, Instead, uh, while Jesus might have appreciated uh, Mary's uh, perspective of the situation, he gently rebukes her. She's in the wrong. She doesn't see the truth in the situation. Now, she'll get there, I think. Verse 50 and 51, while, while they don't understand what Jesus is saying, Mary treasures up all of these things in her heart. She considers them. She's weighing them. They are seeds of truth that Jesus has planted, which are growing, and they they will be further revealed in time. Christians, too, are called to tell the truth about God. Despite other people's perspectives and thoughts on the truth, we have this duty, we have this great privilege to confront them in love with the truth that is Jesus Christ. And I, I feel the temptation, I'm sure you do too, to sometimes feel ashamed to speak the truth. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I, I think uh, it, it's pretty common to, to feel like the, the attitude of, I've got the truth, and I want others to know about it, that just feels radical. It feels a bit arrogant. And again, there's this temptation to feel ashamed. I want you to know that you're not the only person who feels like that. <laughs> um, historically, this has been the, the pressure and the temptation that great missionaries have felt. Paul, one of the greatest missionaries of all time. He also was tempted to feel ashamed uh, to tell the truth. He, he constantly asked people to pray for him for boldness, for courage to, to preach the word without shame. In Romans uh, chapter one, he, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, it's in, it's in great love and care that we ought to care about the truth. It's in great love and dedication to our neighbors that we ought to be people who are all about the truth because it's the truth about God It's the truth about Jesus' work. It's through that truth that people are saved, that God's purposes and kingdoms advance. And this is what Jesus the boy was all about. That was his work at a young age, telling the truth. Um, The truth here amazes scholars. It astonishes Mary. Eventually, it'll offend all of his opponents. But the truth in all its boldness, in all of its brightness, it alone has the power to bring the life and love of Jesus to people. So this is where we've been. Jesus has always been about the work of his Father. What is the work of the Father? Primarily seen here in worship, in obedience, and in truth-telling. And so the second part of our outline, the last part, why Jesus' work is our hope. Why is Jesus' work our hope? Why did Luke include this portion of Scripture uh, in his his eyewitness account? Again, um, Jesus busying himself with his Father's business his entire life, I've already made made this explicit in the way the outline is, is, is set up. This is actually the ground and the foundation of our hope. When we see that, that Jesus has always been working his Father's will, this is the ground, the foundation of our hope. Um, as a man, Jesus indeed in obedience 
laid down his life on the cross for us. This is a beautiful act of of self-sacrifice, of giving. Um, Like the Passover lamb in ancient Egypt, Jesus substituted his life for ours. He died so that we might have life now and forever. And this truth, this is beautiful and it gives us hope. We no longer have to fear death like we once did. Death, as we sang, death has been swallowed up in victory. But it's not just Jesus' death and resurrection that gives us hope. Jesus' entire life gives us hope as well. If any of us take an honest assessment of ourselves, we can look and we can see that we have not been all about the Father's work. Uh, We have failed to live a life that advances God's kingdom and His purposes. Um, Our worship, our obedience, our truth-telling, they have been lacking. And instead of worshiping God faithfully as we've been commanded, we place other things, other priorities, other people, our own comfort and advancement above God and our affections. Instead of uh, obeying God right away, all the way with a cheerful heart every day, we've dragged our feet. We've uh, obeyed grudgingly, grumbling. We've placed other authorities over Him. We haven't rightly ordered our honors. Sometimes we just outright disobeyed Him. And instead of telling the truth about God, we've flattered people. We've told lies. We've avoided saying what's true to keep things comfortable and easy. We've been ashamed of the truth of Jesus and hidden it from those who most desperately need it. Where we've failed with the Father's work Jesus has been perfect. While we may rarely, imperfectly, haltingly be busy with the Father's work, never in a perfect way, Jesus has always, always been busy with the Father's work. And the glory of our faith is that Christ, when he came, he not only died the death you should have died, but he lived the life you should have lived. And he gives both to you his perfect death, and his perfect life. The early church, um, they, they, they used this picture to understand what our faith is about. And he said, uh, many said, it's like we are imprisoned because of a great debt that we had. And then Jesus comes along, a rich man. And not only does he pay our debts and release us from prison, but he shares with us all of, all of his riches. And this is what it's like in this merciful act of substitution that Jesus does. Not only does he give you his death, but he gives you his life, his perfect life of worship, his perfect life of obedience, his perfect life of truth-telling. When we feel shame and guilt uh, for failing to do the work that we're called to do as disciples of Jesus, when we we feel guilty that we have worshipped the creature rather than the creator, uh, that we have lived a life of disobedience, of lying, we have to remember this, this amazing truth as we look at the boy Jesus, Jesus has always been busy with his heavenly father's work. By trusting and following this Jesus, his perfection becomes ours. By becoming human, Jesus lovingly connects with us. He he becomes one of us and his faith, his life becomes our life. And as we learn obedience, as we learn to faithfully follow Jesus, we learn from him a life of worship, of obedience and of truth-telling. Now may you know this, Jesus, this boy who from childhood and into eternity has always been busy with the Father's work. May your life, like Jesus's, ever be focused on the purposes and kingdom of his Father. May you see and repent of the ways that your worship has been lukewarm and infrequent, your obedience half-hearted, your truth-telling infrequent and shamed. And may your hope be fully set not on your life, 
not on what you produce and accomplish, but what the perfect life of Jesus Christ has produced and accomplished for you and in your place. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would build our faith, that as we feel the pangs of sin and guilt and shame, as, as rightly we ought, um, that all of our hope would be set in Jesus. Lord, would that have a transformative effect on us? Would you not only pardon our sins, uh, but give us a new kind of life uh, that is committed to worship, to obedience, to telling the truth? Father, would you help us? Would you send your spirit to us, to fill us, to give us what's lacking? We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.